You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Hi, everyone. I hope you're doing well, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you in what should be just a couple of weeks. And I'm so glad today I get to share with you from John chapter 21. This is a message today about the resurrection and about the workaday world. I really love this section of John's gospel because in it we see that Jesus rose from the dead into the workaday world that we live in. And we learn about Jesus' approach to food and also to work. But let me first tell you how I came by this message. As many of you know, I'm a house painter. That's how I make my living. And some years ago, I was working for a church painting one of their houses and a pastor and his family were living in that house. Uh, Lovely people. It was great to get to know them. And one day I was working on the window of this house and my pastor friend was working inside that room. He was writing his sermon. So there we were doing our respective jobs, him inside at his desk, me outside painting his window. So I stuck my head in after a little while, I stuck my head in the window and said, hey, what's your, what are you preaching on for Sunday? And he said, I'm preaching on John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, which is our text for today. And I said, well, what, what, what will your message be about? What's, what's the theme of your message? Uh, and he said, my message is that we should minister where Christ directs us to, and only then will we be fruitful. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds like a sensible message. Uh, the disciples worked hard all night and caught nothing, but as soon as they began to focus where the Lord directed them to, that's when they were fruitful. So the message seemed to make sense to me. So we both settled back into our jobs again, and the day proceeded. But as the day went on, I began to get grumpy and irritated, edgy and annoyed. Something was bugging me about this text and that message. So when I went home, I opened up John 21 and I read it again and I got out all my commentaries and began studying it. And over several days, I I worked on it and worked on it and slowly I began to understand what it was that was annoying me. This account in John 21, it's the story of Jesus in the everyday world, in the workaday world. So for the preacher, this is the opportunity to talk about how Jesus connects to the workaday world we live in. But my friend's message, even though it was a great message, my friend's message was not about the everyday world. It was about how churches should conduct ministry. So it was therefore inevitably about pastors and church committees and budgets and ministry objectives. It was about life in the church. Now, Don't get me wrong, I'll preach about life in the church any day and every day. But for all the goodness of that, it missed something that was so obvious. This was the day that Jesus visited his disciples at work. This is Christianity in the workplace. This is the risen Jesus in the workaday world. Sometimes my daughters come and visit me at work. They bring the grandchildren, they bring some morning tea, and I have my what I've prepared for morning tea, and we sit together on a site somewhere, and it's a treat for me because I get to see them and the 
grandkids. Uh, it's a special thing for the grandkids too because they get to see Poppy in his work outfit, doing his work-a-day thing. There are days when my family come and visit me at work. This was a day when Jesus came and visit, visited his disciples at work. And so my theme today is the resurrection and the workaday world. And in a moment, I want to talk about food, but before that, I want to talk about work. Let's remind ourselves of the story so far. The disciples have been through such a terrible time. Of course, their Lord, uh, Lord Jesus, was not long before betrayed and crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead and began to appear to the disciples. On one of those occasions, he told his disciples, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. And so for many of the disciples, not all of them, but for many of them, this was an opportunity to go home. And this is where our chapter begins, with the disciples back home beside the Sea of Galilee. For many of them, it's where they grew up. It's where they have homes and families and businesses. And so there they are, waiting for Jesus to appear. And one day in verse 3, we read that Peter said to the others, I'm going fishing. And the others agree to go with them. It makes perfect sense. The boats are there. Uh, the nets are there. The lake is there. Presumably the fish are there. And there's a bunch of men just sitting around doing nothing. So it makes perfect sense. They decide to go to work. So that night, they get in the boat. They row out onto the lake. Not terribly far, it seems. And they begin casting out their net. They cast it out and they cast it out. And after many hours, it seems that they've caught absolutely nothing. And it seems as if it's just going to be one of those days. But then as dawn approaches, a man calls to them from the beach. And he calls out, throw your net on the other side. You'll find some there. And of course, they do what the stranger tells them to do. And suddenly, there are so many fish that it fills the net and there's more, too many that they can't even pull it on board the little boat. And that's when it begins to dawn on them that this stranger is Jesus. It's the Lord, says one of them in verse 7. And so instead of pulling this net into the, into the boat, they can't do that anyway. They pull the whole thing onto the beach near where Jesus is. They pull all the fish up onto the sand and lay them out and they count them and there's 153 of them. Well, let's leave this story there for a moment and ask ourselves what we should make of it so far. Some people think that the decision of the disciples to go fishing is an example of their confusion and their pig-headedness and their faithlessness. One commentator wrote about it, never was a fishing trip so roundly condemned. Honestly, I don't know what John 21, that commentator was reading, Jesus nowhere condemns the disciples. In fact, it's the opposite. He helps them. Of course, the aim of the exercise was to catch, you know, a commercial quantity of fish. And at the critical moment, Jesus provides the essential piece of information. And as a result, they are rewarded for their work. There's a school of fish near you. It's on the other side. It was his insight that made all the difference. I wonder how Jesus knew about the fish. How did Jesus know there were fish right there in that place? We're not told, so I think we have the liberty to guess. 
Now, maybe, maybe Jesus knew about it by some sort of supernatural knowledge. Maybe he just kind of spiritually discerned that the fish were there. Or maybe, maybe he was guiding them. And so just at the critical moment, he guided a school of fish into the place so that they could be caught. Or maybe they weren't there at all. And he just miraculously placed them there just at the right moment so that the net could catch them. Look, I'm being, I'm being ridiculous. I'm having fun with our ridiculous tendency not to see the bleeding obvious, to prefer a kind of supernatural explanation instead of the simplest one. And as we're reading here in John 21, here is what I think is the simplest explanation. How did Jesus know there were fish there? He saw them. In the early morning light, in the clear water, Jesus saw something that the disciples in the boat could not see. And he shared that knowledge with them at just the right time. And in this way, Jesus plays a part in what became a very successful night's work. What should we make of the 153 fish, do you think? Some commentators make a lot of the fact that in the ancient world, they thought that there were 150 species of fish across the whole world. And when you add to that, that Jesus said to his disciples, I will make you fishers of men, possibly at this same boat, at this same beach, at this same place, I will make you fishers of men. And when you put those together, uh, they think that maybe the 153 fish means that um, is a kind of reminder of the global mission of the church and therefore that it's a sort of rebuke. You shouldn't have gone fishing, you should go evangelizing. That's not what I see here. And then some people make a lot of the fact that 153 is a triangular number. Now, just stay with me here for a moment. Take a one, add a two, add a three, add a four, add a five up to 17, and you get 153. So 153 boils down to 17, and 17 is a 10 plus a 7, and that's the perfect number and the complete number, or is it the other way around? And then a 7 is a 4 and a 3, and that's the trinity and the 4. It doesn't get us very far, does it? It doesn't help very much. Why, what meaning should we attach to the 153? I'll tell you what I think. These are commercial fishermen, doing what commercial fishermen do, counting the catch, measuring the size of the catch. Everyone on the crew got a proportion of the catch, so it mattered very much that everybody knew, not just that they counted, but that everybody knew how much there was, how big the catch was. And there are other wonderful eyewitness details here as well. For example, we're told that they were all large fish. Not a single one of these had to be thrown back. And also that the net was not torn, which meant that whoever's duty it was to repair the net had the rest of the day off. These are eyewitness details remembered by fishermen. This is a story about the risen Jesus taking part in everyday work. So what can we learn about the resurrection and about our own work from this story? Here's a couple of things. Work matters. Work is important. Jesus does not condemn the disciples. He rewards them for their work. The risen Jesus affirms the importance of work. 
and plays his part in it so as to reward it. Work matters. And friends, your work matters, whatever it is, whether it's cleaning dishes or running a financial institution or caring for children or selling stuff or teaching or nursing or painting or studying. Whatever it is that you do, it's part of fulfilling God's mandate to us as human beings to occupy the world and to take care of it. Now, perhaps as you listen to this, you've been through the sad experience of losing your job. Maybe COVID-19 has meant you've lost your job. And uh, my heart goes out to you. That's such a difficult thing to deal with. Let me just say a word then for folk who've lost their jobs. You know, there was work before there was capitalism. There was work before there was money. Our work is not what people pay us to do. Our work is what God is what we do with what God has entrusted into our care. And, and dear friend, if you're looking for a job, you're doing just about the hardest job there is. Looking for your job is work. And uh, it's the toughest kind of work there is. You've got all the struggle and all the challenge of work, times about 10, and none of the rewards. It's a tough thing. It's a tough gig to be unemployed. So God bless you and provide for you. And when my little business runs short of work, the prayer I pray is, Lord, entrust a small corner of your garden into my care. Entrust a couple of houses, a couple of rooms. Just entrust something that's in your care and trust it into my hands. Let me encourage you to pray along those lines. Look to the Lord to provide a work for you and uh, see how he will answer that prayer. Maybe you're retired and you're thinking, well, I don't work. Yes, you do. You do work. may not be a big scope, but you do something with what God has entrusted into your care. And that's what work is. Now, I'd like you to imagine now for a moment that Jesus turns up at your work, whatever it is. And I think this passage gives us every reason to believe that if Jesus turned up at our work, he would be interested in it. He would want to know the details about your job. What are you doing today? What's the project for today? He would be engaged with you. He would be interested. And not only that, he would want you to be good at it and to be rewarded for it, to be successful, to make a living from the work that you're doing. So work matters to Jesus and your work matters to him. And secondly, work wisely. Well, I don't have time to develop this theme, but Jesus had an insight that made that working day successful. And I think there are resources in the teachings of Jesus and in the scriptures and in the life of the Spirit that, that, that makes us better workers, that provide keys to productive work. You know, it should be a real asset to have a Christian in any business, to have a Christian in any organization or on staff. And without being too proud, I think we should think of ourselves like that. We have something unique to offer. Think of Joseph in Egypt. Think of Daniel and Babylon. We have something unique to bring to bear to our working situation because of our knowledge of our loving God. So we can work wisely and well, knowing that 
our Lord values the work that we are doing. So that's enough for work. Let's think for a few moments about food. And we pick up the story just as the disciples reach the beach. And at that point, the disciples see that Jesus has a simple meal ready for them. He has a fire burning there on the sand. He's using some sort of simple cooking method. He's cooking some fish. He has some bread there. Also, he calls to them, come over and have breakfast. And he hands out the bread and the fish to them. He feeds them. Now, let's think about this. When the disciples arrive at the beach, Jesus has already cooked the meal for them. So where did he get the fish? They were not from the catch of 153. So where did he get them? And where did he get the bread? We're not told, so I think we have the liberty to speculate about where they came from. Now it's possible, I guess, that Jesus just created them miraculously. He, he didn't bring them with him. He just miraculously blinked his eyes and, hey, presto, we've got fish, we've got bread. Well then, why the fire? Why go to that trouble? Why not just miraculously produce cooked fish and bread for everybody? Well, why not um, just put cooked fish and bread in everybody's tummies and be done with it? No cooking, no cleaning. If you could bottle that, you'd make a million dollars. Look, I'm being ridiculous again. I think the simplest thing is just to imagine that, that Jesus got himself organized and cooked a meal for his friends. That's what we read here. How did he get the fish? Maybe he had a line and a hook. And if he did that, well, then, of course, he would have to gut the fish and fillet the fish and scale the fish. That would be all part of it. And the bread, did he make it himself? Did he buy it in a village nearby? Maybe he did purchase it the night before. And if he was cooking, which he was, he would have some sort of device. <coughs> a grill or a pan of some kind. Now, I know these are minor issues. I know these are questions we can never hope to answer, but I think, it's, I think asking them is well worth it. It's important because it helps us locate Jesus, the risen Jesus, in the realm of everyday life. Here's what we know for sure. The risen Jesus got himself organized and cooked breakfast for his disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. A couple of weeks ago, I visited my, one of my daughters, uh, and I, I, for weird reasons, I could only be there for 30 minutes. And uh, as soon as I arrived, uh, Becky showed me the bowl of flour and butter and said, Dad, make some scones. So I had to just click into cooking mode. I had to think about oven and trays and baking paper and flouring the board and pushing out the... And within 30 minutes, there on the bench, I had 16 beautiful scones. I didn't get one. I had to leave before that. But, but I got myself organized and, and I cooked. And in the same way, Jesus got himself organized and cooked for his friends. So there are the disciples eating this meal. And the gospel writer tells us that although they knew this was Jesus, none of them was brave enough to say, is it you, Lord? And from that... Some commentators have decided that uh, this was a meal conducted in complete silence. What do you think? Is that really likely? Here's a group of men who just experienced something truly remarkable, a frustrating night's work ends with a remarkable catch. And of course, once the fish is divided out amongst them, each one goes home with a fish for dinner and 12 fish or thereabouts to sell. 
it's, it's turned into a good day. And I have no doubt the disciples will be talking about what's happened. In fact, I don't think you'd be able to shut them up. They want to know, for example, what it was that Jesus saw from that distance that made him know that there were fish there. One of them, of course, will want to say, I told you a long time before you should put the net on the other side, but nobody listened to me. And somebody else will want to say, well, a couple of hours before you all wanted to give up and I was the one that told you to keep on going. And then someone else will have the story to trump all the other stories about the time when they were years ago when they caught 154 fish and they were all this big. <laughs> it's what we do, isn't it? We tell stories, we share our lives. When we share food, we share our lives. We share our experience of the world. Here is the risen Jesus in the workaday world, sharing in the events of everyday life. Jesus rose in, from the dead into the everyday world that we inhabit. So what can we draw from this for our everyday lives? Here's a few things. Food matters. Eating is a spiritual issue of the first order. What we eat, how we eat, who we eat with, how we speak and think about eating, it all is central to being a human being and it's central to being a follower of the risen Jesus. And flowing from that, that eating together is essential for Christian community. It was a central feature of Jesus' ministry. He gathered people around him and he fed them. Here on the beach, he gathers his disciples around him and he feeds them breakfast. And that pattern of eating and drinking together continued in the primitive church. The early pattern in some of the first churches <coughs> was to share what were known as love feasts. Now, I've got no idea what went on at a love feast, but I like the sound of it. And I'd like to be there. I'd like to go to one. And you know, one of the shocking things about the primitive church, about the very first church, was the way in which they gathered at the table people from different socioeconomic kind of levels and from different ethnic and racial groups were gathered around the table. And you know, if you go anywhere in the world, you go, go to a Christian church anywhere in the world, if you look hard enough, you will find a table, the table on which to share and remember Christ's death, the table at which we share what we call the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking in remembrance of Jesus. And we need to be sure that we keep eating and drinking at the center of our life together. It's essential for Christian community. Now, I'll happily share the Lord's Supper in any way, wafers and wine, bread and juice, sayos and cordial, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have it all and I'll happily share in it. But I do sometimes find myself wondering, what happened to the meal? A little bit of bread at the beginning, a tiny little bit of wine. It's like the first taste of the meal, the little dregs in the cup at the end of the meal. What happened to the meal? It's as if we... Are we, I wonder, are we embarrassed about eating and drinking and then we feel that we have to pare the thing down to its barest minimum? <clears throat> it's hardly eating and hardly drinking. I'm happy to share it whatever way we do it, but I do wonder why we are embarrassed about eating and drinking and we should not be. Eating and drinking is at the heart of Christian community. And then thirdly, cooks should be honoured. Jesus was a cook. 
Jesus served food. Jesus fed people. Jesus sanctified the business of providing food. And cooks deserve to be honoured for their labour and for their service and for their skills. And here's a weird thing in the history of the church. Down through the centuries, of course, we've allowed women to um, you know, prepare and serve food in our homes, but we've only let men preside at the Lord's table. You know, in church, when we have communion, and this is so wrong-headed, as if we are thinking that kind of domestic, everyday eating is women's work, but religious eating, that's men's work. It's wrong in just about every way you can think about it. Obviously, cooking is not women's work, at least as far as Jesus is concerned. And as for presiding at the Lord's table, I think you can argue that whoever put the food there is entitled to preside, to have the honour of leading at the table, whether they're male or female. So in the world of the resurrection, food matters, eating together is vital, and our cooks deserve to be honoured. So this chapter demonstrates for us, illustrates for us that Jesus rose in the everyday world we know, the world of food, the world of work, and the world of all the down-to-earth things that make up our daily lives. Friends, one reason why we struggle to see what is sometimes just the bleeding obvious in the Bible and also in the world is that we have it in our minds that what God is doing is rescuing us from the world to take us away to some other place. Dear brothers and sisters, the, the Christian hope is not that we will fly away like ghosts to meet Jesus in some spiritual place. The Christian hope is that we will rise from the dead just as Jesus rose from the dead and we will come with him to wisely rule over this creation, to work together, to eat together, to drink together. God raised Jesus from the dead into the workaday world we live in. And that makes all the difference. 